Let's bow together, bow together in prayer. Lord, apart from your Spirit using the Word that the Spirit has inspired, what we're about to do is a waste of time. So we pray, Father, that you might be graciously intervene in my weakness. And I pray that you would help all of us, Lord. Perhaps many of us are tired. Uh, many of us have uh, many other thoughts and distractions that we can easily take us away from what you want to say to us today. We pray your spirit may use your word, apply these seeds to the hearts of all of us here, Lord, and bring forth the fruit that you desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The scriptures speak very clearly and without any controversy regarding the issue of thankfulness and gratefulness to God. Psalm 105 begins with the admonition, Give thanks to the Lord. Paul repeats the same type of exhortation in the New Testament and says to the Colossian believers in a straightforward way, Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts and be thankful. Now, I don't know about you, but some of us, as I've looked over these verses, they're rather familiar to me, but as I've looked at them and reviewed them once again this past week, I've noticed and thought through a little more carefully that the call to be thankful is not always given in the context in which, as we sang earlier today, uh, when the world is as it should be. The call to be thankful to God is given to people whose lives were extremely difficult and who are facing many, many challenges and hardships and heartaches. As a matter of fact, if you consider the verse that I'd like you to turn to in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, Hebrews chapter 13, 15, which is page 1,433, Hebrews chapter 13, page 1,433, the audience to whom the writer of Hebrews addressed were facing persecution for their devotion to Jesus the Messiah. The persecution in this particular instance, we know, involved the fact that various authorities began to seize their property. So imagine you losing things that you consider to be highly valuable, and here comes a word from the writer of Hebrews, verse 15. He writes and urges them to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, giving thanks to Him. Did you notice the key word there? Continually. It's one thing to say, well, I'll occasionally thank God. Or I'll periodically thank God, like maybe once a year, you know, on Thanksgiving when I'm, my belly's full and I've eaten more than I should. But notice that the text here implies and clearly calls us to frequently, persistently, and repeatedly offering thanks to God, even in times of difficulty and struggle. That sort of takes this element of thanksgiving to God and takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul urged the same thing. When he wrote to the Ephesian believers, these words, Ephesians 5.18, it's no wonder that he tied them together with the fact 
that no one's going to do this apart from the Holy Spirit's help. Ephesians 5.18 says, Keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. In other words, keep um, live under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. It's those words that have really begun to probe my thinking, to think, ask myself, is this anywhere close to where I live my life? Always, continually offering thanks to God? I'll be honest with you, it does not characterize my life. Matter of fact, this past week I came back from a truly wonderful and amazing trip in Scotland, visiting our son there and just had a wonderful time and saw so many amazing things. And I get back and it doesn't take me very long due to partly, I'm sure, a lot of lack of sleep is one element, but there were many other things. And you turn your car on and the car sputtering and the light that was on the dashboard went from needs maintenance to now saying check engine. So I've got additional lights pointing and the car is just barely chug, 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 chug. And I'm thinking, oh, brother, got a major repair facing me. Next thing you know, I'm looking around saying, well, that's a nice car. That's a nice car. Look at this whole thing. This thing is a 19, uh, 1999 I'm driving. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. I just went from walking all over Edinburgh, Scotland, and we talked to some folks who lived there, and they said, you mean all you Americans have your own cars? And they couldn't believe how many cars. We have four cars in our parking, our little uh, plot over there. And I think to myself, what am I doing all of a sudden getting into a funk, starting to complain and worry, and then beginning to have a bad attitude about my car? Maybe you can identify with that struggle. You ever survive that struggle? Maybe you don't, but I, I have this problem. You start off the day and you offer this brief prayer of thanks to God that you're still alive, that you're able to get out of bed, and that you face a new day, a night of rest. Not too long after that, you find yourself, like me, grumbling about various things. Usually it starts off when you notice, uh uh-oh, one more pound on the scale. Or maybe you're the kind of person that saw another check engine light on your dashboard or some other thing that's telling you to do in your car, or you're dealing with and you know you're going to face that annoying person at work who just takes all the joy out of your day of work. Or maybe you're understanding that the stiffness in your neck or the pain in your back that you've hoped would have begun to diminish has not diminished and it's only getting worse. Or maybe the math assignment that you were given this week you still can't figure out, and you stayed after school for the extra tutoring, and you still don't get it. Maybe your problems are much more severe. Perhaps you've suffered through some very serious, agonizing concerns, painful experiences like the death of someone you truly and dearly loved. Or perhaps you've gone through the substantial financial loss in the last several months or years that have really hurt everyday life. Perhaps your parents have divorced not too long ago or even a long time ago and you're still dealing with all of the disappointment and frustrations or even now you're facing such a situation. Maybe your spouse has cheated on you. Your best friend has moved away. And I would wonder at those times, all of us it seems to me are vulnerable to a heart that becomes numb toward God. 
that the flames of thankfulness that are meant to be raging on the altar of our hearts has died down and the flames of gratefulness to God no longer are even flickering much at times because our hearts have become calloused. Perhaps you are like me. Occasionally you'll say thanks to God, but more often you find yourself slipping into complaining about what's wrong with your life. And you resent the fact that your life is not going as well as the person you know who is somewhere involved in your life, and you say, man, if I could just have a day in his shoes, if I could just live her life for a while, and you find yourself thinking about the person in the next cubicle, how life looks so much better for them because they took the big trip or because they live in the bigger house, or the kid whose locker is next to yours and you think he has more friends than you do, or you're talking to the other mother at the bus stop and you realize that her kids aren't sick, but all of yours are sick and remain sick, it seems like, every other week. My prayer this morning is as we look about these texts and think about what it means to continually offer thanks to God, is that the Holy Spirit will perform a supernatural work in us. Because the key solution here to this issue and why we aren't more thankful than we are has nothing to do with our circumstances around us. Your life and my life and what's going on, they're all going to be different. And Paul didn't say, I'm addressing this only to the super spiritual. These principles are things that the Holy Spirit needs to do His mighty work of regenerating our hearts and renewing our hearts so that the bright flame on the altar of our hearts the flames of thankfulness and gratefulness to God will shine brightly. That's only something that the Spirit of God can do more consistently, more frequently, more regularly. I want to help explore two ways I'm hoping and praying that, this, that we'll be able to stoke the flames of thankfulness to God. And these things are this. Number one, I would suggest to you that one way that we might prayerfully see this happen is if we reflect deeply and frequently upon the grace of God in Christ. Reflecting upon the grace of God in Christ will have a huge impact, I believe, on stoking the fire, the flames of thankfulness in our hearts before God. I've been thinking about an opportunity that was afforded to me when I was in the seventh grade this past week. Actually, when my brother-in-law, Brian Halila, was in town, we talked about some of our camp experiences and we remembered that uh, in my particular example, we have went to camp for four weeks. And the next to last night of camp was a called a tap-out night. And this is when uh, a group of uh, leaders would come and they would awaken you in the night and certain select ones that had been recommended by the counselors and you would be tapped out and you would be given opportunity to have certain requirements that you would have to then uh, successfully complete these and then you would receive some sort of honor in our situation, you would be made a little chief. Big deal. And back at that time, it was a big deal. So here we are, middle of the night. Uh, you're taken out to this place. They explain everything going on. You cannot speak. Once you've started the process, you're not allowed to say anything until you've completed all these things. And so they take you out. And our first task was to keep a campfire going from 12 midnight to 6 a.m. in the morning. And they took us off to this uh, rather... A remote part of the camp and they dropped us off on a trail far enough that you couldn't see anybody else around you you're left by yourself with two wooden matches and there you go it said 15 minutes you got to gather your wood 
Start your fire, don't talk. We'll be back. So sure enough, went out gathering fire, and guess what? I was so disappointed. I did have a flashlight. And I'm looking around, and all I could find was wet wood. That's all they had. Everything I could find was wet wood, or else it's still attached. It's alive. So I go around, and I'm trying to pick up all this wood from the ground. It's damp. But somehow I was able to start the fire with the first match. After the first hour or so, with lots of blowing on the, the, the fire to keep it going, lots of tending the fire, there was a fire going, but I could tell you I was getting very exhausted. It's a lot of work keeping a fire going when it's not very good wood. I blew and blew on that campfire, and whatever extra wood I found, I very strategically put it right up next to it so it would start to dry out a little bit. It's something that's sort of strange to listen to, a sizzle of a fire. You ever heard that? Put wood on the foot and you hear this, you know, like, oh, brother. And it's smoke everywhere. Well, needless to say, I did get it going for a while, and then I fell asleep. I just could not stay awake, and I panicked, thinking, oh, no, is the fire still there? And there was this tiny little flame. And so panicked at the end there, I'm over there blowing on those coals to try to stir it up and keep it going. And so I never felt so relieved. Then I finally saw the sunrise and still saw a flame on that fire. It was a long, long night. And sometimes I think that's sort of a metaphor of how our lives are when it comes to this element of thankfulness. That for us, one of the reasons that we find that the flames of thankfulness are quenched, that they're impeded while we're not seeing the kind of flames of thankfulness in our hearts, is because of a the wet wood of pride that is causing a serious problem regarding the uh, burning of those flames. You see, pride stifles the flames of gratitude. Now, I can't go into too many details about everything that's, help, that's found in this helpful booklet, but I'd urge you to get a copy, if you don't have one, called From Pride to Humility. It's available on our book table back here. Very small booklet, but boy, it is powerful in describing the areas of what pride looks like in our lives and what it really is all about. And the definition of pride here is essentially this. A proud person believes that life is all about them. Their happiness, their accomplishments, and their worth. And that pride essentially says that we want to be a people who we believe that we by ourselves are the accomplishers of anything. That whatever is accomplished that's worthwhile, we're the ones who made it happen. They should be uh, certainly the benefactor of all things. In essence, people who are proud believe that all things should be from them, through them, to them, and for them. And that's the struggle we all face, isn't it? That we naturally tend to be thinking more of ourselves than we should. And we have a sense of always comparing ourselves with people around us so that we can gauge how much we have accomplished or how good we are performing. And we're always sort of measuring ourselves by the people around us. And we keep track of our achievements and we take, make, take great credit, uh, uh, gratitude and, and a great sense of uh, pride in our accomplishing various things or gathering certain things around us, having the certain symbols of our successes and achievements, having the best clothes that we think will make a statement to other people around us, or the electronic gadgets that are the latest, or driving the coolest car, or whatever it is. It's about us. 
And we measure ourselves by other people, trying to be gratified, knowing that we're a little bit farther along than somebody else. In a culture that celebrates fame and success, material wealth, we're all prone to having a mindset that celebrates individual merit achievement. We have a tendency to forget the fact that all of us are dependent upon God for everything and that none of us is self-sufficient. None of us. And so pride robs God of His rightful glory, His rightful honor. Pride exalts self and the arrogance of our hearts encourages us to expect God to deal with us in ways that we think we deserve. And so what's the result? We tend to fall into the way of thinking that oftentimes finds fault with God for His providence. For whatever has occurred and things that are happening in our lives, we, we view it through the lens of saying, oh, come on, God. And we become annoyed with Him. And so like the children of Israel, we murmur and we complain when our plans don't work out the way we expected them to work. And Paul had to speak to that issue in the lives of the Corinthian believers. When he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, listen, these children of Israel are examples to you and me, and that includes me, by the way, and you. He says, you got it regarding the seriousness of hearts that are hardened by self-centered conceit. The children of Israel, he says, grumbled, verse 10 of chapter 10. They were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul went on to warn them as he warns all of us. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you're not vulnerable to pride, you better watch it because you're about ready to fall over and stumble over your own pride. All of us are susceptible to self-centered expectations of God, the tendency to think that we deserve better from God. And one of the ways to lessen pride's grip on our hearts is to reflect upon the Scriptures long enough that we would gain an accurate view of ourselves and an accurate and profound awareness of the greatness and amazing wonder of God's grace. Paul did this with the Corinthians, and he asked a very direct question to them. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. See, the Corinthians were really, they were stuck into this thing about thinking they were all that. They really did. They thought they were all that plus some. And he had to come to them and he asked the question, which is a good question all of us should ask ourselves this morning. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? It's a leading question. (laughs) The answer suggests, well, there's really nothing that I have I haven't received in the sense that whatever I have has been given to me by God. I've received tremendous blessings and things that I don't, can't take full credit for and shouldn't take full credit for. And so these Corinthians thought they were recipients of undeserved favor. They'd forgotten that they were receiving of various favors from God. And theologians like to talk about God's grace in two categories. There's common grace and there's saving grace. Common grace includes those natural gifts that are given to all of us. For example, the gift of your physical strength, the gift of your talents, your abilities, the gift of your whatever level of IQ you have, uh, the gifts that we find in nature of rain and sunshine, all these kinds of gifts that provide for us food and daily provision, those are gifts that are scattered far and wide all over the earth. 
And God provides these blessings, and we cannot claim credit for the oxygen that we breathe every day. We cannot take credit for the color of our eyes, unless you wear those phony baloney uh, contact lenses. Sorry. Uh, it's okay if you do, but I'm just saying. Uh, you can't take credit for the color of your eyes that you have received naturally. You can't take credit for your height. You can't take credit for your level of coordination or lack of such. These are things that are just given to you, extended to you by God. And everyone equally shares in the blessings of common grace. A good verse that teaches that is Psalm 145, verse 9. Psalm 145 says this, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all His works. That's far and wide. That's everybody. But there's something even more amazing about God's grace when you think about saving grace. When you think about the undeserved nature of saving grace, whereby God makes alive those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. God's saving grace is the grace that celebrates the fact that no one is saved by human effort. Romans 3, 21 through 24 teaches this wonderful principle about the amazing nature of God's grace. The righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified or being declared right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What do we know about that? He's saying here that faith is the opposite of self-reliance. Rather than depending on our own attempts to gain a right standing with God by our own efforts, our own performance, we rely completely upon the merits of another person, namely Jesus Christ. And all the blessings of salvation, eternal life, knowing God in a personal, wonderful relationship, the full and complete forgiveness of our sins, access to God in prayer, the indwelling presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, having spiritual gifts given to every person who's a believer, fellowship in the family of God, the full privileges of being an adopted child of God, being able to relate to God as our Father, and understanding what it is to have the hope of glory, to have insights into the God's Word, to be able to understand it as the Holy Spirit teaches us the Word. Many, many other of these blessings, all of these blessings of salvation are granted to everyone who repents and who transfers their trust from themselves and their efforts to perform and earn merit, transfers their trust to Christ and what Jesus did for them and Christ alone. No one can honestly say they deserve such blessings. Those blessings are undeserved. Why? Because if we received what we deserve, we would be forever cut off from God. We would be left on our own. We would be hopeless. We would be helpless. We would face the consequences of our innumerable acts of rebellion against God. But God, in accordance to His amazing grace, deals with those who repent and who believe, not on the basis of how much better we may become, but on the basis of what Jesus has done and what He has done right and what He has done on the cross when he suffered for our rebellion as our substitute and was raised from the grave, that, my friend, is the basis of realizing what undeserved riches of blessing 
are found in Christ. If you want to deal with pride, go to the cross. If you want to deal with pride, remember who you are and what you really deserve, and then think about what God has done in extending grace so widely in this world. The Apostle Paul never lost sight of the undeserved nature of God's gift of grace extended to him. Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I love to read the Apostle Paul's testimony and how he continually offers thanks to God for so many things. He sees the grace of God all around him. And in this particular instance, he's going to allude to the time in his life where he realized his life was extremely uh, self-focused. It was all about himself. And he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's that flame of thankfulness burning brightly on the altar of his heart. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who put me into service even though, even though I was formerly the opposite of what you would think someone who would receive grace like me would be. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. I was a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy. And then he says, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. (laughs) What's he saying there? He's saying, you stack up all my sins. It will go from here and I can't even measure how high it is, he says. But the grace of God was greater than all of that. And he he thinks about that and ponders that as it's constantly something he he is aware of. And he says, I can't help but thank God. (laughs) I I can't help but thank God. And Jesus Christ, he says, and notice the absence of pride at the end of that text, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice he says, he doesn't say he came into the world to save superior performers. <laughs> doesn't say that. He came to save sinners, Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all. He says, I know how undeserving I am. And that's the other reason why I can't help but thank him. And why my heart burns brightly with the flames of thanksgiving and thankfulness to God. I wonder if the flames of thankfulness have diminished in your heart. And if your heart would exhibit such a lack of grateful praise to God. Perhaps it's because you have never experienced that grace. (laughs) Maybe you have never come and said, Lord Jesus, I need to transfer my trust to you. And stop trusting in myself and become a better person and accept the wonderful gift of eternal life by placing my faith in Christ and what He's done for me. Are you too busy making excuses for that, thinking you'll never be qualified, you're not worthy? Or are you stepping out and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm unworthy, but I am coming to You because You are dealing with me in grace in the person of Christ. That's what Paul did. He was confronted by Christ. And Jesus comes to you and says, Repent, believe upon me, Trust Him. Turn from your sins and come to Christ today. And my friend, I guarantee you, when you experience the wonders of what it means, when the Spirit of God changes your heart and life, you will know gratefulness to God in a profound way. It will be something that will be very obvious in your heart and life. And if you're here today and you say, well, I've not 
that seems to not have, that flames have seemed to die down quite a bit in my heart and life. I can remember a time years ago when it used to. May I remind you, my friends, maybe you've been putting on the fire of that flame wooden pieces that are damp with pride. You've lost sight of who you are apart from Christ. And may I urge you, my friend, to come back to the glories of the gospel and remember ourselves what? I'm unworthy, Lord, but I'm a desperate sinner coming to an all-sufficient Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. That, my friends, is good. It will ignite that flame. It will, it will be that which will be a raging fire when we celebrate, ponder, and reflect and deeply upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me just add to another thought here quickly. I want to cause us to have a second suggestion here of how we would move more toward the idea of continually giving thanks. I would suggest that we reflect frequently and deeply upon the goodness of God. Not only the grace of God, but the goodness of God. I'm concerned that one of the reasons perhaps the flames of thankfulness may fade and diminish in our hearts and lives may be due to the fact that we have lost sight of God's goodness. And this perhaps may be aligned or alluded to or or connected to the issue of the fact that we may begin to think incorrectly about what God is like. The Bible says, do not make for yourselves idols. Don't make idols. And the reason God doesn't want his people to make idols is because whether it's a statue we make that we worship, it misrepresents what God's like. God is not a statue that sits there that someone else has formed, that has no power, that's lifeless, and is located in this one place. God is much greater than that. And idolatry can also take place when we think incorrectly about what God is like that we begin to sort of draw conclusions about God based on what we observe in the world, and we therefore have defined God incorrectly and conceived of God incorrectly in our hearts and minds, and we've involved ourselves in idolatry. Now, I say that because I want you to notice this interesting connection between thankfulness and celebrating the goodness of God. Listen to these verses. Psalm 107, verse 1. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. Then we read Psalm 100. He calls us to give thanks to God. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is, you fill it in, the Lord is good. Well, thank you. Three of you knew the answer there. That's good. Why does the psalmist connect the offering of thanks to God with the fact that God is good? Because One of the reasons that we stop thanking God or the flames of thankfulness have diminished is because we sometimes wonder how good God is. We begin to question that issue. That's why Psalm 31, verse 19 says, we ought to reflect upon the goodness of God. Oh, how great is your goodness, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 31, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. Psalm 33 The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. David invites us, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. I wish I could unpack this in an extensive way, but I'm just going to direct your attention to your notes and your bulletin. I want to read you 
what another great preacher has done to unpack this thought about God's goodness. Would you follow along with me? Just follow along. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words well over 150 years ago, and yet they're still true even today. He writes this, God is good. The reason, this is reason enough to give him thanks. Goodness is his essence and nature. And therefore, God is always to be praised. Whether we are receiving anything from him or not. Those who only praise God because he does them good should rise to a higher note and give thanks to him because he is good. In the truest sense, God alone is good. Therefore, the Lord should have the royal portion. If others seem to be good, he is good. If others are good in a measure, that is only a small amount of goodness you see in other people, God is good beyond measure. And when others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord because he's good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instant's doubt as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questionable, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. His dispensations, that is the way he acts and the way in which he chooses to uh, involve himself in different plans in the world, they may vary. But his name is always the same and always good. It is not only that he was good and will be good, but he is good. Let his providence be what it may. Therefore, let us, even in this present moment, though the skies be dark with clouds, yet give thanks unto his name. Do I get an amen? Amen. amen. You're amen in the Baptist preacher of 1850s. There you go. See? He had a lot of thoughts that he packed in there that are helpful for us. Here's a thought. Scriptures do not say... Give thanks to the Lord when you feel good. He says, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. One of the things that really hit me, the understanding, I know this in my mind, I've thought about it many times, but it hit me again. I'm on a plane, we're flying from Edinburgh, well, from Dublin to JFK. We have been, for whatever reason, under the clouds, for maybe six days. We had one day we had sunny, but most of the days were there overcast, cloudy, misty, you name it. It's cloudy. The day we're getting on the plane, it's overcast, it's windy, it's cool, whatever. You get in that plane, you go through the clouds, you can't see anything for a while, and then what happens? Boom! Everybody's closing the little shades they have on the plane because they're getting just blasted with sunshine when you get above the clouds. What's the point? On a cloudiest day, on the day where you might be in pea soup fog and where the clouds are so thick you can't see anything but just overcast, it looks dark and gloomy, my friend, the sun is still shining in all its glory. You just can't see it. If you got up high enough, you'd see it. Do you know at nighttime, the sun is still shining? Think about it. That may be a new thought for some of you. (laughs) Our perception 
of reality is so narrow. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. It doesn't say, give thanks to the Lord when you figure out all the reasons why you think He is good. I'll give you one more example here quickly. The book of Nahum. You say, what? Nahum, yes. N-A-H-U-M. It's a book in the Bible. Yes. Look it up in your table of contents. Nahum was written at a time in which the powerful forces at work in the world had come and desecrated, had come and killed people, destroyed things, and broke down the temple within Jerusalem. And the people of God are saying, God, where are you? Where are you? When all these evil people come in here and they destroy all this stuff and do such acts of abomination, ripping open pregnant women, whatever. And Nahum says these amazing words. He knows, he's struggling with the fact that who's going to hold these people accountable for their atrocities? And listen to what he says, Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. If you understand the context of which he writes that, if you understand how dark and cloudy and how overcast and gloomy the situation seemed, Against the background of those words, those words are incredibly faith-filled. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. I wonder if the breadth and extent of evil in our world, of the corruption that's in our world, has diminished your awareness of the inherent goodness of God. Know this, my friend, God is good. And I want to tell you right now, one of the reasons we can celebrate the goodness of God is because God is in the process of overturning all this evil in our world. He is not sitting up there saying, well, that's just the way it is. Get used to it. God is saying, I am waiting to that moment when Christ is returned and Christ is going to overturn all these forces of evil because he's already risen from the dead. He's already nipped Satan and given him that fatal blow. But Satan's still trying to do what he can to rack rack evil in the world. But my friend, the point here is that justice is coming. That there's a day in which the goodness of God is going to be evident for everybody to see because he's going to someday restore the world. He's going to put it in its right order. He's going to show himself to be the God who triumphs over evil. You say, how do you know? The grave is empty, my friend. And I urge you to read 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul recounts, he says, if it isn't true, there's no no resurrection. He says, well, forget it because we're all a bunch of idiots because the world is evil and you're going to die and all this death is going to win the ultimate blow. And he says, nuh-uh, there's a day of resurrection. And because Christ was raised, we're going to be raised, and there's going to be a tremendous transformation going on. And what does he do? He concludes that great chapter with what, my friend? The flames of thankfulness to God are raging at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. Because what does he say? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over all of these forces of evil and all that has been destroyed and corrupted all that God originally made. Again, I say, what do the flames look like on the altar of your heart? Is there any thankfulness to God? You say, well, Lord, show me your grace. 
Help me understand and know it and, and experience it firsthand, afresh, anew, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking for a miracle. We're asking for the miracle of your Holy Spirit to take those who are dead in their sins, those who are ungrateful, those who stand in judgment over God, those who have defied God, those who are running away from God or trying to be God, be their own God. We pray that you might turn their hearts even this day to being those who worship the true God, who bend their knee, who transfer their trust away from themselves, their performance, their desire to somehow think they're going to be better enough to find their way into heaven someday. Lord, help them to transfer their trust off themselves and onto Christ, to repent of their sins, and to truly understand what it is to have the grace of Jesus Christ given to them in full measure. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to learn to appreciate your grace. Expose any forms of pride to us, Lord. Help us to see those evidences of pride and repent of those. And may the fires of thankfulness to you blaze anew and afresh. And Lord, for some of us who have gone through perhaps some wicked deeds, some awful injustices in this world, those of us who have had so much mistreatment and had our hopes dashed again and again, Lord, may we not lose sight of the reality that the blazing, brilliant reality of you continues on in your goodness, that you are good. And I pray, Lord, that we might learn to thank you whatever's happening around us in our world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.